I think of this festival, there were 11 drum solos. There were more drum solos than guitar solos. Huh. <laughs> and so I was just going to start with just a Calvary, like yeah. just an avalanche of drum yeah. soloing. But it, it was a little too much. And so I figured Stevie was shocking Stevie. enough because you'd just never seen him in that yeah. light before. And I, I knew I wanted to gobsmack people like with something shocking. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Amir Questlove Thompson takes us behind the scenes of his new documentary, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. The film shines a light on archival footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival, an epic event celebrating Black history, culture, and fashion that took place in the summer of 1969, just 100 miles south of Woodstock. Standing as a testament to the healing power of music during times of unrest, the film includes concert performances by Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Gladys Knight and the Pips, B.B. King, and more. Summer of Soul was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. Summer of Soul is Mr. Thompson's directorial debut. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Thompson spoke with director Amir Bar-Lev about filming Summer of Soul, or when the revolution could not be televised. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. All right, it's the, the Amir show. I know. It was, it was a strange <laughs> Have you ever done this God. before? With, have you ever uh, done a talk with another Amir? No, I think it's this is the first time. Nice to meet you. Yeah, finally. Good to meet you. Thank you. All right. I have an H in my name. He yeah, I'm jealous know. of it. Yeah. Um, well, so thanks for staying, everybody. Uh, you know, this is obviously such a special movie, and uh, there's a lot we could say about it, but we've got like 25 minutes, and I'll try to go through as much as as, uh, as possible. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep my answers uh, succinct and no, sure. don't don't do that. We no, want to hear I'm, from I'm you. world famous for like okay. I saw it was a half hour and I was Feel like that's free. only two questions. So good, perfect. That's good. I'll make them good. I'm well, yeah. I, I'll try. I mean, since this is the DGA, I thought I'd talk about craft because this is Questlove's first yes, it's his first time directing. Thank you. Which you clearly wouldn't know from from watching. But obviously, you know, you come to this as a as a musician, as a historian, as a journalist. You've, you're a multi hyphenate, as they say. And I was curious about decisions you made that you felt were informed by your musical background. Do you think you made decisions? Absolutely. Yeah. Also, love the fact that we kind of color coordinated. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. we didn't plan this at all, people. All right. um, I sort of knew there might be an advantage to me not saying not having uh, experience or done the traditional route of, of uh, filmmaking that said, you know, I, I wasn't privy or aware of what previous rules to follow or not follow. Of course I gave my producers um, absolute permission to let me know if anything was like amateur hour or, you know, Hey guys, why don't we do this? Like I'm the guy that calls up, four in the morning with like Eureka flex capacitor ideas, like right. that sort of thing. Um, but in the very beginning, when 
I was just trying to wrangle together, like, what story do I want to tell? Because first of all, I had 40 hours of footage. Like, all, all that you guys have seen is barely 16, 17% of, of the footage, you know. And my first amateur hour, my first draft was like three hours and 25 minutes. So I had to cut 90 minutes out of it. But I, I, I will say that um, my uh, producer, uh, Joseph Patel, who is also a music head, um, he wrote my first cover story like 25 years ago. So he and I sort of grew up together and, and transitioned to this world that I just joined. And um, he knows that my creative process, whenever I put uh, a show together or when I do a DJ set or anything creative, I actually... I, I go backwards. Um, the first thing I think about is what feeling do I want people leaving with the last 10 minutes? Um, and just as a guy who's throwing shows, you know, not all root shows have been hitting out the park, but I do know the Jedi mind trick that will make the last 15 minutes, the, the encore, like the best thing you've ever seen. And then you forgot, you know, Tariq tripping over <laughs> yeah. the mic or that bad right. note or whatever. Um, so I actually worked backwards trying to figure out what my ending was as far as my intro when I was initially, okay. So when we were quarantining, I was staying at a friend's farm with their family and occasionally I have like focus groups and let them see like what we, what we cut. And one of their gripes was like, well, you're not in your film. And I was, I was hyper aware of, I, I didn't want it to be like, Quest Love, Summer of Soul. And, you know, it's kind of the inside joke that I'm in everyone's documentary yeah, right. as a talking head. So I really wanted to stay as far away as possible uh, from this particular avenue. But I figured my my knowing wink of this is my debut would be to start this film out with a drum solo. Right. So initially, I think of this festival, there were 11 drum solos. Like drum solos were, there were more drum solos than guitar solos. Huh. <laughs> and so I was just going to start with just a Calvin, like yeah. just avalanche of drum yeah. soloing. Um, but it, it was a little too much. And so I figured Stevie was shocking Stevie. enough because you'd just never seen him in that yeah. light before. And I, I knew I wanted to gobsmack people like with yeah. something shocking. So to me, Stevie starting it was that intro. Initially, in the three-hour, 25-minute version, Nina was in the middle huh. and Mavis and Mahalia Jackson were the end, but it just, it felt different. Like with them ending it, it felt like a nice little kumbaya right. feather landing moment. Right. Right. And I really wanted uh, something more fiery and I felt like Nina's set represented that. So yeah. we sort of switched the lineup. So yes, uh, I used my experience as someone who makes playlists all the time right. and, I just apply that here. Right on. Yeah. Well, it totally, it really worked. And uh, so you're saying you didn't use that. You threw the chronology, the actual chronology away. Oh, absolutely. And went by yeah. emotion. Yeah. 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 Um, it's such a musical film and I don't mean that it's about music because obviously it is, right. but actually the form and the content are both musical <laughs> and the way you do history, you yeah. know, the, the moon landing montage, I had to watch that a couple of times because it really is so percussive. Yeah. You know, and uh, it felt like, you know, it's history and sampling at the same time. I was I was inspired. OK, so since I came of age, every 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 I guess every creative has uh, 
uh, that that moment in which something creative just totally cracks your head open and shows you like infinite possibilities with the world. And usually with musicians, like oftentimes I'll hear of people talking about how like, you know, Sgt. Peppers changed their lives or Pet Sounds or even like, you know, Blood on the Tracks or a particular Dylan album, especially with punk. Like people always say like Bad Brains or Sex Pistols. In terms of hip hop, to be like 17 when Public Enemy first came out, that was like one of the most life changing things simply because like I grew up in... I grew up with three very distinct record collectors. Like my dad was kind of yacht rock, yacht rockish. Like he liked Streisand and Johnny Mathis, like real middle of the road. And then my mom was like very eccentric. Uh So she liked Santana, Miles Davis, like anyone with a Marty Claire wake art album cover, like bitches brew, like anything with those type of freaky. She, she would judge it on album covers. And my sister, um, just to blend in with her girlfriends at high school. Right. Like she was listening to, she was bringing home Bowie and physical graffiti by Zeppelin. So I, we had a very distinctive, at least for the inner city, a very, uh, a weird record collection, 3000. And I'm, I'm eating it up, but I see this more as like their records, not like the stuff I like, but that's mom and dad's music, my sister's music. And what happens is Public Enemy, their creative process, um, if you're not familiar with their production process, it's more like, a, I, I, guess, I, I guess you can say like Jackson Pollock, like just right. throw it on the wall and see what sticks, yeah. that sort of thing. And you're listening to their music and suddenly my whole childhood record collection is coming back at me. Huh. Like, oh, yeah. wow, that's Funkadelic. Right. And that's Bowie. <laughs> and that's... Uh, yeah. Oh, 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 you know, it's like first it was name that tune, and then I realized like, oh, there's there's a way that you can throw everything in but the kitchen sink and still have it make sense. And so, this was kind of my nod, if you will, to the the the, the name of the production unit was the Bomb Squad, right? And their yeah. whole thing was just they, well, they wanted to be music's worst nightmare and just yeah, throw right, right, everything right. in, make it atonal, like, yeah. and that's the kind of approach. Um, I initially didn't take that in the beginning, but when the pandemic set in, um, if you know about me, you know, I'm world famous for having like 19 jobs. So there's no more tonight show with Jimmy. Well, at least for the first two months, there was no tonight show with Jimmy Fallon. There was no, you know, I've never not been on a stage since the age of five, you know, at least in a month's period. And now, 18 months have gone by before the roots even returned to the stage. So I had a lot of time to myself on a farm with a bunch of chickens Um, (laughs) and time on my hands to really just sit and process and meditate and really just think about like, what do I want? How do I want this film to be? And, you know, it, it also took a different turn because we happened to be experiencing last year the same exact conditions that were happening 50 years ago. Right. And I was always trying to figure out like, okay, I know the fortunate few who are alive, like those born in the thirties and forties and then baby boomers and generation X um, in early eighties, like pre millennials, they'll understand the contextualization of Stevie wonder and Gladys Knight. But I was racking my brains with like trying to figure out like, how am I going to get, millennials, young millennials and Gen Z 
right. to understand this film. And at first I was going to give up. I mean, there was like, I think we had a discussion like, okay, well, Drake's uncle is Larry Graham from Sly and the Family Stone. So maybe we get him to be a talking head or like right, right. maybe get Beyonce to talk about gospel singing. That's, right. But then I realized that with all that happened last year, politically, protest-wise and whatnot, like that was going to be the connection. That was the adhesive, the fact that they were seeing, and that's what they told me, like, yeah. oh, this is, this is what we went through last right. year. So that was their connection. Right. So right. Once, once, that, once we were living there, then this film took a whole nother direction. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely has those bomb squad moments, but I want to also just say that it accordions, you know, like that last scene, which is just so poignant. What's so special about it is that you do treat it like a narrative director would treat it, where a lot of times with documentary directors, you're reading the interviews in a transcript and you're just ruthlessly kind of like, well, that's extraneous, that's extraneous. And you're treating it like text, which it isn't. It's a performance, you know, and a narrative director will look at the body language and everything. So you leave a lot of that stuff long, I thought. Like the guy at the end saying, you know, I know I'm not crazy, you know, right. I, but I, yeah. Well, it's a lot like, of those, those yeah. human moments, especially yeah, human with, moments, yeah. with, with Merlin McCoo, right. with, um, uh, Musa, like literally those were, those were candid moments in which I th- kind of thought, I thought the camera was off. Like I was just bantering, especially during that part. That was like our first day of shooting when he first came through and I looked at him, I'm like, this guy's 12 years old. Like, what does he know about? You know? <laughs> right. He's like, yeah. no, I'm 58. Like he, he, <laughs> right, yeah. he had his ID and everything, but yeah, right. initially I was going to, I was quasi dismissive because I thought like what emotional depth does what a five-year-old have. And like on purpose, we gave him no context whatsoever. Wow. And there was really nothing online to like, okay, go to Wikipedia and cheat. And okay, this is exactly what happened. Like he right. described everything to a T that we ourselves didn't even see until like maybe two days before, because it took five months for us to treat and process the film. And so we interviewed him first and that's when he was talking about like Afro scene and chicken and the fifth dimension and all, you know, the, the the colors they wore. seen it at that point? No, uh, we, we had just seen it. And when he described the fifth dimensions, uh, costumes, we were like, Whoa, okay, wait a minute. And then we showed it to him. Oh, I see. And then he just got, he wow. was floored. And yeah. I've, I've been there myself, like, you know, because I grew up in the pre-VHS beta right. phase where there's television shows that, like, stuck to my childhood and I thought I'd never see again. And you'll remember, oh, it might be on YouTube. And right. it's just like you remembered it. And so for him, that was a, that was a eureka moment where I realized, like, oh, we're, we're giving people their lives back. Yeah. Like we're validating him in a way. Right. And, you know, we were just casually talking. I'm I'm really glad they caught that because I didn't have any idea. Like you, you couldn't reenact that. Like, oh, wait for the cameras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were talking. And in the case of Marilyn McCoo, I saw something in them that I myself went through as an entertainer. I had made a comment while they were watching the film about, I was like, in all my experience of seeing the fifth dimension perform, like I've never heard Billy Davis sound like a, a Baptist preacher. Right. Ah, good God. And like any of those things, right. like they've always been poised and sophisticated. And, you know, because back then, I mean, code switching was real. Like right. Motown was world famous for 
you know, charm school and making right. sure that you cross Dress your legs up. and, yeah. you know, point your pinky up when you drink your tea and right, right. all those things. Right. And to see them just so loose, I'll just mention it. And when I saw her eyes, I just realized like, right. oh, I, I hit a mark. Because so, I know what that means. I know what it means to like the night before when you're opening for Red Hot Chili Peppers, you can't do the same show that you did with the Wu-Tang Clan. Right. You can't. <laughs> right. So, like, for the last 20 years, yeah. I knew, like, hmm. you know, asking promoters, what kind of audience is it? And then adjusting the show hmm. accordingly. And for her, that was, like, a rare moment where they didn't have to be so defensive and make right. sure that there was no spot, no wrinkle right, right. In, the, in, the, in their presentation. So, yeah, we were just casually talking and just happened to catch it. Well, uh, yeah, well, there's another case that, that, you know, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, True. but, uh, good on you for keeping those, those ad lib moments in there and for organizing the film that way. Uh, you. you know, you. I thought it was really, really brilliant. And, uh, yeah, I was curious just on the topic of performances, you know, these are films, but they're also, you know, events. Mm -hmm. Have you had any really special screenings like, uh, do people dance at all? You know. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, all summer, we've been, um, you know, we they've been gracious enough at, at, at Searchlight and at Disney for having us do like outdoor screenings and yeah. whatnot to show it in Harlem. You know, in yeah. front of Gladys Knight and Merlin McCoo and oh, Billy wow. Davis was was something to behold. They even performed after. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, you know, it's just so weird because usually the things that I hold near and dear that seem special yeah, um, is usually hard to get people to catch on. But I, I think there's something different about this year that has changed people. Like we're none of us are going to be the same, be us changed for the better or for the worse. Like none of us are the same. And for those that this is resonating with, there's almost like a spiritual element that you couldn't, you, you can't capture this type of lightning in a bottle, you know, had this film come out in 2016, 2017, it would have been slightly different, right. you know, but I think the, the timing of it coming out uh, in the summer, right when we're just slowly creeping out into the world. And, you know, this is like one of the first things that people did, at least based on the letters that I saw of people like, Oh, it's the first thing time I went to a movie theater. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, I've heard a lot of stories of people, uh, sort of being celebratory in the, in the audiences and That's cool. yeah. How did you cast this? I mean, there's obviously so many performers, you could never have interviewed them all. And then yeah. you have great attendees also. And I was just wondering how, how did you make those choices? How did you, um, you know, I think I have a pretty strong social media reach. So initially I, I knew from the gate that it was going to be a rare thing for someone that's, I mean, if you're a teenager, if you're between 15 and 25 in Harlem in 69, you're like sitting between 70 and 80 years old. So, you know, I kind of address my social media with, Hey, does your uncle or your aunt always rave about the so-called mythical oh, wow. Uh, music festival that they went to because even I I didn't believe it myself and you know I'm I'm a well not even self proclaimed I mean I think people know how much of my musical snobbery has gotten out in the world but you know even when I was approached about doing this I, I was 
instantly cynical. I was like, wait, Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, Staples Singer. There's no way this happened without, right? without me knowing. And I'm like <laughs> running to the next room, like calling up Nelson George, like, you know about this? Huh. No, I never heard of it. And so I, I just didn't believe it happened. Huh. And so it's kind of how I approached it. Like, do you have a, a grandfather or grandmom that swears that huh. they saw this happen yeah. some time ago? And people just started like, yeah, I do. Oh, like, amazing. and that's the thing. Like, it's 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 like seeing Sasquatch. Like, no right. one believes it because there was no evidence <laughs> of it. Even when I unknowingly saw the Sly footage, I was in Japan at a restaurant, and it was playing on a, a monitor, um, like ten minutes of it. It was, it was called the Soul Train Cafe. Just think of like Chili's with soul music in it, uh-huh. but in Japan. So, (laughs) you know, and um, based on the look of it, I thought it was like maybe Montreux Jazz Festival or something. I thought it was like a Nice Jazz Festival, like somewhere in Europe, because I knew that Europe at least had the upper hand when it comes to televising and preserving their festivals. But little did I know, like, that's when I first seen it. So 20 years later, in casting it, we got a good 10 to 15 uh, attendees that um, had strong enough experiences. The one story I wanted to share that wound up on the floor was um, Ethel Beatty, the two women that snuck to see Sly and the Family Stone. It's the perfect ending. Like, they committed the perfect crime. They snuck off to see this, but they forgot that their fan enthusiasm uh, was so strong that that they got home, went to bed, And then at 11.05, they got, uh, their, uh, their mom had uh, bursted in the room because she's like, you're on the 11 o'clock news acting <laughs> the full, like, <laughs> they got totally busted. <laughs> they got totally busted because the, the local news happened to do a report at the, you know, at the Harlem Cultural Festival. So they were on punishment for like two weeks, but a lot of those types of stories. But um the before the pandemic, I had the Chambers of Brothers lined up. I had uh, uh, Chuck Jackson. He performed as well. There was a whole backstory with his particular story that didn't make it. I had a few comedians. I had like uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Chappelle to sort of explain comedy. My comedy element is the one thing I had to drop totally, and it's a shame because um, Pick Me Markham. Uh, is the one, he's probably the artist that has performed Apollo Theater uh, the most. And um, it it took, it was weird trying to contextualize why this was funny. And in order to do that, then you would have to explain post-menstrual comedy, vaudeville era comedy, and how this is sort of the tail end of that. Because you have a ventriloquist with right. Willie Tyler and Lester, you have Pick Me Markham, doing their whole bit. Um, yeah, Moms Mabley. So you have like all these types of 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 comedy. Even um George, what's his name doing like sort of like the black rich little. Like he he was doing like uh doing uh Sammy Davis Jr. and Johnny Mathis all and right. so it's like four types of comedy and um it, it was just so involved and once the, again once the pandemic set in I kind of lost a lot of talking heads. Harry Belafonte, he was uh the sponsor for Hugh Masekela. He's the one that right. got Hugh to come to go to school in London, paid for him, and then come to the United States. So 
But, you know, in turn, I, I, I gained the film that we have now. So I don't see it much as a loss. Um, we just had to be really resourceful once the pandemic happened. It's not easy to cut down that amazing amount of material to, to what you got. And I think you made great choices. Yeah, it was the hardest thing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I'm being told we're, we got five more minutes. I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm curious if you, if you uh, caught the bug and want to make another film. I think I, I, literally, I think everyone was waiting on the sidelines to see like what was going to happen. Um, so as a result, yes, um, I am working on five projects. I'll, I'll be busy for the <laughs> next 10 years. The funny thing was, um, funny. in the case of Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. this was just a dress rehearsal for them. Um, one of the, well, three things oh, I found yeah. out. I found out that, um, Aretha Franklin was a an eleventh hour no show, which is why Mavis Staples filled in for the last minute with uh, Mahalia Jackson. Wow, that was Aretha Franklin supposed to perform. Right, she couldn't make it. Wow, and I also found out that um, okay, so Sly and the Family Stone wanted to dress rehearsal for Woodstock, right? So they used this as a performance. No one knew they were coming. Weird enough, uh, James Marshall Hendricks wanted to also do a performance. And for some reason, uh, he got a no, which is weird considering that Sonny Chirac and the, the Chambers, I mean, the Chambers Brothers did an 18-minute version of Time, the most ah. psychedelic thing. That's another thing I did drop. Like, that whole performance was epic on its own. But actually, Hendricks wound up doing three weeks of after parties. So him and huh. blues master Freddie King did Hendrix's three only Harlem uh, nightclub blues sets. Like he wanted to get back to his blues roots and he was sort of tired of being the novelty act that sets the guitar on fire and does all the things like, look at him go, look at him go. Like he wanted to be more serious and less in his mind novelty with it. Yeah. Yeah, So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll say that, uh, Hendrix, Aretha Franklin. Oh, and the final week, there's there's a memo in uh, uh, Hal Tolshin's uh, notes that whoever's the uh, the film company that's that's shooting and you know this is like one of the very first uses of of video, right? And oh, the reels were like 30, uh-huh. 30 pounds each, very heavy to carry. Um, they inform him that we can't do the last week, so the last minute they had to scramble the lineup so that the A-list acts that they wanted to capture for those five weeks they caught and then kind of put the locals and whatever's on the final week. Um, they had like a Miss Harlem pageant thing. Yeah, that was interesting to watch, at least the, the, the photos. I happened to look at the lineup of the, the nobodies and we, we missed our chance to see uh, a 17-year-old Luther Vandross give his first performance. Oh, my gosh. So, wow. yeah, th- there's a lot that I found out in the... Uh, and kind of his, 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 uh, notes there. Yeah. Well, I could sit and talk to you all night. Um, thank you. Uh, so thanks so much for giving us this film, Amir. And thank you, uh, thank you, to Amir. The DGA for having us. And thanks to the audience. Thank you guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and a, if you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 321 featuring director Marilyn Agrello discussing her documentary film street gang. How We Got to Sesame Street with Annetta Marion. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, 
rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 